she should be here. Y'all should be able to witness what she would have contributed to this world. You shouldn't have to hear it from me. It's been three months since the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and for the parents of one 10-year-old victim, there is no escaping the grief. It's Wednesday, August 31st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, how one Uvalde family continues to cope with grief and anger. Also, an update on the latest from the investigation into how classified documents and other government records ended up at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. The Federal Transit Administration issues a scathing report about the MBTA, and we'll hear from a former deputy administrator of NASA about the space agency's goals and priorities in space. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Long lines are forming outside water distribution sites in Jackson, Mississippi, where tens of thousands of people are searching for water that's safe to drink, cook with, and shower in. Severe floods exacerbated long-standing problems in one of two water treatment plants. Macy Brown, who says she's a junior at Jackson State University, says she was especially concerned about the ability of elderly and people with disabilities to get to distribution sites. But with the help of Jackson and other students, the water is coming to them. Pound two zero. That's Jackson navigating her way through a residential building where people have been waiting for her. There are people who need, who need help, who, you know, who, who, who really deserve help. And it's already hard enough, you know, as is so adding on the fact that your water it's dangerous to drink and use is just a whole nother layer of issues. Jackson says she and others set up a hotline for donations to buy water. She says 20 to 25 students from across Jackson are helping her. The Biden administration has also pledged federal assistance to Jackson's residents. The Justice Department is pushing back on what it describes as baseless accusations from former President Donald Trump. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports Prosecutors are offering new details about their probe of top-secret documents found at Trump's resort in Florida. Federal prosecutors say they developed evidence Trump was not cooperating with the investigation. They say they learned papers had been removed from a storage room at Mar-a-Lago and other steps were taken to obstruct the federal probe. The Justice Department shared those details in an effort to push back on Trump's bid for an independent special master to review the papers. DOJ says there's no legal basis for that move and it would only delay an urgent need to assess national security risks. Both sides are doing court in Florida Thursday. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Inspectors from the IAEA have arrived in southern Ukraine to begin assessing the safety of Europe's largest nuclear power plant. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more. There's plenty for nuclear inspectors to investigate at the Zaporizhia plant. The sprawling complex is Europe's largest nuclear power station. In recent weeks, it's been battered by shelling, power cuts, and wildfires burning nearby. Inspectors will be looking at the plant's physical security and safety systems. They'll also be talking to Ukrainian staff who are working under the Russian military. Former IAEA inspector Shirley Johnson says that those interviews are perhaps the most important part of the mission. It kind of depends on whether the Ukrainian operators are going to be able to speak truthfully and openly. Because it's those workers who are keeping the plant safe. 
Jeff Brumfield, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Federal authorities investigating the MBTA have released their full report on the transit system's safety issues. WBUR's Beth Healy has more. The Federal Transit Administration's report orders the T to address 53 different safety areas. Those range from understaffing and employee training to improving the culture inside the T. Paul Kincaid is an FTA spokesman. It is going to be a, an effort for the T to staff up to deliver the service that the people of Massachusetts expect. But as we said, this is an opportunity for them to begin creating the safety culture that allows them to do that. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak says the T needs to hire 2,000 new workers to address the FTA's directives. It also has set up a new office inside the agency to oversee the work ordered today. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Beth Healy. Former Massachusetts Secretary of Transportation Jim Aloisi says today's report is not a surprise. He tells Radio Boston one poor decision by the MBTA came a year ago when it shifted a half billion dollars out of an operating budget used to hire people into capital projects. The FTA explicitly called that out today. And we've been calling that out as a mistake of the highest magnitude. Aloisi says today's report by the FTA shows the T has not put the resources into routine maintenance for safety. Governor Baker has a plan for how to spend, how the state should use more than $5 billion in surplus tax revenues. He's filed a supplemental budget propose, a proposal to use about $1.6 billion on new spending. It includes $200 million for the MBTA, $37 million for school safety, and $100 million for COVID response. The Baker administration also said today it's moving forward with $2.9 billion in refunds to taxpayers because of the excess revenue. Sports, the Red Sox try to avoid the sweep tonight when they take on the Twins out in Minnesota. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight, lows around 64. Tomorrow should be sunny. The highs will be around 81 degrees, sunny and 78 degrees on Friday. Right now it's 82 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Focus Features, presenting Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, a comedy about a megachurch pastor and his wife who'll do whatever it takes to save their congregation. In theaters and streaming on Peacock Friday. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. We're starting this hour in Uvalde, Texas, where, like the rest of America, students and parents are starting a new school year. But unlike the rest of the country, they're returning to school for the first time since a shooting, where 19 students and two teachers were killed in May. I spent last week talking to people in Uvalde about what the last three months have been like and what they're thinking now. Over the next few days, we're going to bring you their stories including the story of Kimberly and Felix Rubio. I met them on a recent Sunday evening at the site of a special memorial for their daughter, Lexi Rubio. I have been so, like, on pins and needles about, like, that it was everything was going to go smoothly that I almost didn't even want to tell anybody where it was until yeah. we're, like, here today yeah. starting. Just so, yeah, we're, Lexi was 10, and she was one of the victims of the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School. And as this small town continues to grieve, murals are going up on the walls of downtown buildings. The victims' faces are larger than life, surrounded by the things they loved and the words they spoke to their families. 
The artists working on Lexi's mural projected an image of her on a cream-colored wall in a parking lot, and they started working. Lexi's family watched from across the street. They looked up at the image of Lexi, smiling back at them, surrounded by colorful flowers and butterflies. I'll see it when I run. I'll see it when I park here to go to work. It's, yeah. it's a beautiful building. Like, it's a beautiful building. You yeah. can see the tower behind. Yep. The day after we met the Rubios at the mural site, we visited them at their new home. Hi, come in. Hi, how are you? Where another image of Lexi stands out, right when you walk through the front door. So we have uh, Lexi's photo. The first night we stayed here, like that was what Felix grabbed immediately from the house. This Felix loves it. It's a softball. It says Lexi Rubio, and then there's pictures of her. This is the one where she's has her. She's in the dugout, has her hands on the fence. She's looking at us, gives us a little smile. I asked Felix and Kimberly to describe their daughter. Lexi was a quiet child, shy, uh, smart. Uh, appreciative of life and anything that comes her way. Uh, her athletic ability, where we're just seeing what was coming about from her. Um, competitive. Competitive, yeah, very, very competitive. competitive. Um, she wanted to be the best at everything. And she was, because she put in so much hard work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you said she was athletic. What sports did she play? Uh, she did softball, basketball. Those were her two main sports. And then I know... Volleyball, that was something she was looking forward to. How have you all been doing these last three months? How, how, how have you been making your way through this? I feel like personally I've just kind of thrown myself into the activism role. Uh, don't give myself much time to think of it. Um, I really don't think I've accepted it, really. This summer, they attended rallies in Texas and met with state lawmakers, and they testified to Congress in Washington to call for more gun control measures, including a federal ban on assault-style weapons. At this point, Felix, who was wearing a t-shirt with Lexi's name and face on it, grew more quiet, and Kimberly answered most of the questions. How has it been at home with your kids working through the fact that Lexi's not here? Um... It's difficult. Uh, I feel like the kids have changed. Uh, it's we're not the same, but we're missing her, and so we're just we're broken. Mm-hmm. You said that you've thrown yourself into the activism, and I know that you've been a journalist in the past. What has it been like, kind of stepping into that role and being kind of at the forefront of that activism? Why was that the impulse that you had? following the shooting. I just immediately after thought about one, my own children. Am I, we, still have, we still have children here that we have to fight for. And then I just kept thinking about other moms, really. Um, I don't want anybody to feel the way I feel. One of the reasons why we wanted to come here now is because everyone is preparing to start a new school year. And I wanted to ask about what that's been like for you in preparing your children to start a new school year. Are they going back in person? Uh, we have see, three that are going back in person, for sure. Um, I think it means something to them to kind of go back to their routine, to see their friends. 
And then our little one was also at Rob that day. So we signed him up for virtual. We're still back and forth on whether we're going to send him to school. Uh, I don't know what his reaction will be. So, but virtual is definitely a possibility for him. You've talked about what your kids want, but how are you all feeling about kids heading back to school? I mean, I don't think we'll ever feel comfortable with our kids being anywhere that isn't inside my home. <laughs> uh, I think about that a lot because with school right now, but they'll go off. I mean, parades, concerts, a grocery store, where are they safe? I'm sorry, that's just... At- it's a really sad situation that that's something you have to think that any parent has to think about. I mean, that's why we, we chose this house. Uh, it's by the junior high, the high school, Flotus. All of our kids will eventually be in this area. So if something ever happens again, we thought, well, they can run home. So when we're looking for a place to live, that's location was priority. Hmm. What have you heard so far from the school districts, from local leadership about how things might look different at these schools in this upcoming year? because of what happened at Rob? Uh, So we met with the superintendent and um, assistant superintendent and social worker uh, so we could lay that out, or they could lay that out for us. Um, They did have a few things that day. The fences are obvious that's going up. Uh, There will be a paid position, somebody who goes around each campus every morning and throughout the day, I think, to go check locks, not only to make sure that they are locked, but to make sure there isn't any anything wrong with the mechanism and if it is it'll be um put into the ipad and like a um, immediate maintenance order and that will go out and be fixed it's a long list of changes but you even said yourself you're not ever going to feel safe with your kids not being in your home is there more that you'd like to see them do that would make it even a half measure more comfortable for you as a mom to send them out there i don't i would say no there's nothing you can do yeah I mean, because you say there's a heavy police presence, but there was a heavy police presence that day. So I don't know that even if there was a threat, I don't feel comfortable that they could handle it. Um, I mean, I guess to me, I would really like somebody monitoring the surveillance cameras. That could be the one thing for me. But again, I don't know that I'll ever feel comfortable, you know, if I'm not there or they're not with me. I want to ask you a little bit about the activism work that you've been doing. I know some people after violent events happen, there's, I feel like there's always these two schools of camp. There are people who say that it's not a moment for activism, it's not a moment for politics. And then there are people like you who immediately jumped into activism. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's been like for you and for your family to kind of jump into this role? It's been difficult because, you know, like we don't even want to get out of bed some days. It's, it's a lot, um, but it's also necessary and I know that we would love to say that it isn't political, but it, it is. Uh, that's just, our, that's our country. Um, so we need change and that's just the way you go about it. So that's why we, you know, we've been in DC meeting with senators, um, just trying to let them know that while it is political, it doesn't have to be this like left, right thing. Um, we all want common sense gun laws. Like it just, that's what we want. If you would just listen to your constituents, you would hear us. How do you want the world to remember Lexi? How would Lexi want us to remember her? And what would she want us to know about her? Lexi would have made a difference in this world. Uh, She was very into politics already at a young age. Um, I know she would have made a difference. So it's not just us who lost someone, the world. The world lost her. Um, She's just a 
she's a beautiful person and we miss her a lot. This should have never happened. And she should be here. Y'all should be able to witness what she would have contributed to this world. You shouldn't have to hear it from me sitting on this table. I'm really sorry. I know that you you mentioned to one of the producers that you had at one point considered leaving Uvalde, leaving Texas. Mm-hmm. What makes you stay? Alexi's here, so we're staying with her. The same day we met the Rubios, we saw some of their family at a prayer walk. Let's pray for the schools because we lift our hands. Father God, we come before you. On Sunday evenings, this group has been walking the grounds of Uvalde's schools. We realize that we cannot trust in man for security, Lord. That is why we are here before you this evening because we. We followed them as they walked around the junior and senior high schools, some with hands raised, others singing. Praying for Uvalde's peace and safety. Tomorrow, we'll hear from two Uvalde parents who do not feel safe sending their children back to the classroom. Instead, they've decided to homeschool them. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBURN, WBUR.org, 82 degrees in Boston at 418. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll have an update on the investigation into how classified documents wound up in former President Trump's Florida home. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. In business news, the drought in Massachusetts is hammering agriculture, but the dry weather is actually benefiting some businesses in the region. The Portland Sea Dogs baseball team says average daily attendance is above pre-pandemic levels. The heat is also helping with ice cream and water sales. Local landscapers say they've been able to get more work done on outdoor projects like patio and walkway installations. And golf courses say the lack of rain has brought in more customers, but some of the intensely hot days have kept people away. On Wall Street, stocks were down again today. The Dow down 278 points, closing at 31,513. NASDAQ was off 68 points at 11,815. And the S&P 500 off 31 points at 39.55. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. 
Looking for a staycation read? Our new pop-up newsletter is filled with great suggestions that will transport you to the sun and sand. Sign up now at wbur.org slash beachbooks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Since the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, former President Trump has claimed that he completely cooperated with investigators. The Justice Department says in a new court filing that that is just not true. The department also provided new details on the high-profile investigation. And joining us now with more details is NPR Justice Correspondent Ryan Lucas. Hi, Ryan. Hi there. Okay, so this new document that the Justice Department just filed in court is something like 36 pages long. Mm-hmm. What is what is in there? Uh, a lot. In this document gives us really the most detailed look yet into the government's uh, long-running efforts to get back from Trump classified materials and other presidential records that were taken to Mar-a-Lago after he left office. Remember, Trump was supposed to turn all the government documents that ended up at Mar-a-Lago over to the National Archives back in January, but the FBI learned that more classified documents were still at the Florida estate. And so uh, in May, it got a grand jury subpoena for any documents that remain there. In response, Trump attorneys say they did a thorough search of Mar-a-Lago, including a storage room where boxes were kept, uh, and that they gathered together all the remaining classified documents. And then when a senior Justice Department official and FBI agents visited Mar-a-Lago in June, Trump's lawyers handed over one uh, red weld envelope, double-wrapped in tape, That envelope contained 38 classified documents, including some that were marked top secret, and they said that was everything. 38 classified documents, one envelope. So Trump's representative said that that was everything, but then the FBI heard from witnesses that there were still more classified materials there? That's right. The department says the FBI had evidence that government documents were likely concealed and removed from that storage room where they were being held, and that... Efforts were likely taken to obstruct the government's investigation. And remember, one of the crimes the FBI is investigating here relates to obstruction. And when the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago on August 8th, agents found more highly classified documents. The department says some of those documents were so sensitive that even the FBI agents and DOJ attorneys needed additional security security clearances before they could review them. Uh, the department notes that the FBI recovered twice as many classified documents in a couple of hours at Mar-a-Lago as Trump's attorneys did in weeks of their, quote-unquote, diligent search there. And the department says that cast doubt on the extent of Trump's cooperation. Okay, I want to talk about a particular photo because in its filing, the Justice Department, including this photo that shows classified documents found in Trump's office at Mar-a-Lago, and these documents were clearly marked secret and top secret, which which seems pretty important. Can you talk a little more about this photo? Right. Uh, It says a couple of things. One, it makes clear that there's no way to argue that there could be any confusion that these were classified documents. They have bright red or yellow cover sheets with secret or top secret and bold red letters on them. Uh, On top of that, the government says classified materials were found in Trump's desk drawer mixed in with other documents. Now, I spoke with David Lofman. Uh, He used to lead the Justice Department's counterintelligence 
Intelligence Division, and he says the fact that classified documents were just mixed in with Trump's personal effects matters because it makes it reasonable to infer that Trump had a personal interest in keeping those classified documents even in the face of a grand jury subpoena. Here's Lofman. I think some of the additional factual revelations in the filing make stronger the government's potential criminal case against the former president of the United States for unlawful retention of national defense information, as well as his potential complicity in obstruction of justice. In other words, the new details here suggest Trump's legal peril may be greater than we previously knew. Hmm. So what's next in these proceedings? Well, there's a hearing tomorrow in federal court in Florida on Trump's request for an independent special master to review the documents seized at Mar-a-Lago for potentially privileged uh, reasons. Uh, The Justice Department opposes that. It says there's no legal basis for it. And it says the FBI has already gone through everything that was taken at Mar-a-Lago. That is NPR's Ryan Lucas. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. There's a new launch date for the Artemis One spacecraft. If everything goes according to plan, it'll take off Saturday afternoon. NASA hopes this mission will pave the way for humans to eventually return to the moon, which raises the question, why? Lori Garver is one person who's been asking critical questions about that. She was deputy administrator of NASA during the Obama administration. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Nearly 50 years after the last Apollo landing, why go back to the moon now? Well, you know, within the space community, this has been something they wanted to do since they left the moon. And I think one of the reasons we haven't is because we haven't answered that question. Today, NASA says it's because we're in a race with China. But of course, we've won that race six times. Going back to the moon is, I think, a positive path, but I don't think we have well articulated the purpose for spending the amounts of money that are now required. Private space exploration companies are also trying to get to the moon. Do you think that should change NASA's calculus at all? Absolutely. Private space companies are actually part of this mission. Of course, they were part of Apollo as well. SpaceX has a contract to build the lunar lander, but they are also building a large launch vehicle that could get us there for a fraction of the cost of the government-owned and operated planned systems that have taken more than a decade and tens of billions of dollars. So this isn't an either-or. Has the horse already left the barn? Is it too late for NASA to turn back? Well, the horse has not left the barn. I think that is uh, the issue. Oh, you mean like specifically the Artemis didn't take off yet? Yes. On schedule as it was supposed to on Monday. Well, and it's not just this latest setback that is an issue. It's emblematic of why a program that was supposed to take five years has now taken nearly 12 and that was supposed to cost 20 billion has cost 43. That is something that I don't understand how the public will continue to support once there is a private sector option flying. How much of this has to do with the desire to get to Mars? I think within NASA, Mars is the ultimate goal. I think that going to the moon is not required before you get to Mars, but it is certainly helpful and a place where you can learn again to operate at a distance. The goal of getting to Mars for many people is more exciting, but that is an order of magnitude uh, more challenging. If all of the time, money, resources being spent on a return to the moon were suddenly made available for something else, what would you like to see NASA expend its resources on? I think NASA could go back to the moon for significantly less resources in a way that 
drives technology, which is what really returns to the nation and the planet. The money that they save for doing that could be spent on priorities like increasing their earth sciences programs, studying greenhouse gas emissions from space, helping us manage our resources on this planet. There are a lot of ways NASA can contribute to a better world, both here on Earth and beyond. Decision makers at NASA are not going to be surprised to hear the arguments you're making. Uh, You've made them and others have made them. Why do you think they haven't won out? Well, I, I wrote a book, Escaping Gravity, that just came out about this. I think, you know, no one's bad. It's just the status quo in Washington. Contractors already have jobs. They're going to argue for keeping those jobs. Their members of Congress want them to keep those jobs. And it just becomes sort of a do-over when, in my view, we weren't established, we being NASA, to do the same thing again. We are supposed to be driving technologies. And so that's why I think many of us are critical of this rocket program because it really is 1970s technology. And that is not the way we think it's best to go back to the moon. That's Lori Garver, former deputy administrator of NASA. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 82 degrees in Boston at 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, the Food and Drug Administration has authored the first updated COVID-19 vaccine since the pandemic began, boosters targeted at the Omicron variant. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows will be around 64 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny. The highs around 81, sunny and 78 degrees on Friday. Again, right now, it is 82 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank, mathworks.com slash GBFB, and Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Fall semester starts September 19th, semesteroff.com. Mass grief, mass outrage, seemingly everywhere, but can we also learn to share in each other's joy. When you ask people to report on the empathic experiences that they have, they resonate with other people's positive feelings just as much as their negative ones, if not more. The science of empathetic joy and how we can experience more of it, that's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden has approved a federal emergency declaration over the water crisis in Mississippi as folks continue to wait in long lines at distribution sites for water to cook with, drink, and flush toilets. NPR's Giles Snyder reports on the move to bring federal resources into the mix to help relief efforts. The White House says the Homeland Security Department and the Federal Emergency Management Agency will coordinate disaster relief efforts in Jackson, Mississippi's capital, as well as surrounding communities. Tens of thousands are without safe water. Record rainfall and flooding led to the breakdown of a water treatment plant, leaving much of Jackson without clean water to use. The crisis came after flooding exacerbated long-standing problems in one of two water treatment plants there. President Biden also expressed his support over the long term to help Mississippi's state capital rebuild its aging 
water infrastructure. Officials in Pakistan say they're worried about the spread of waterborne diseases among flood victims as water from weeks of powerful monsoon rains begins to recede in parts of the country. Here's NPR's Dia Hadid. Doctors tell the Associated Press they're seeing diarrhea, skin infections and other waterborne ailments among people who survived the floods. To help deal with the situation, the World Health Organization says it will release $10 million to Pakistan. It's just one of the challenges as Pakistanis grapple with floods that left a third of the country underwater. The United Nations says there are almost 650,000 pregnant women in flood-affected areas. Over 70,000 are expected to birth this month. To help bring more attention to the crisis, the United Nations Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, will be visiting flood-affected areas this Friday. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. Stocks finish lower on Wall Street. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The MBTA will hire about 2,000 new employees in the next year. The transit agency will also plan out its staffing needs for the next five years. That's part of how the T will address some 50-plus problem areas laid out in a critical safety report released today by the federal government. In addition, MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak says a new compliance office will handle issues raised in the report. We'll be setting up a separate department that will be responsible for all of the project management work associated with the uh, the safety management inspection. The Federal Transit Administration and the State Department of Public Utilities will monitor the T's progress. At least one Massachusetts elected leader is calling for a change at the MBTA. That call comes after the FTA report that cites the T's failure to prioritize safety and day-to-day operations. WBUR's Chris Siderick has more. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton says in light of the report from the FTA, it's time for a change in leadership at the MBTA. I don't see how you can read this report and not believe that absolutely that has to happen. Moulton says what the T really needs to get back on track is someone with real-world experience. We need to bring in some professionals who know how to run transit systems. Because I ride transit systems around the country and around the world, and it's a totally different experience. Moulton adds that he plans to stay on the issue, and we'll be meeting again with MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak in the coming weeks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Chris Siderick. An MBTA employee was transported to the hospital after an incident along the Orange Line. The Transit Authority says the worker injured their foot at the Jackson Square Station in Jamaica Plain shortly before 10 this morning. The employee is part of the crew replacing rail in the area as part of the Orange Line shutdown. A T-spokesman says that the worker was conscious and alert when taken to the hospital. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering a part-time master's degree in arts administration and a graduate certificate in arts management, focused on the management, fundraising, policy, and legal issues of mission-driven arts organizations. Learn more at bu.edu met. Sports, the Red Sox try to avoid the sweep tonight when they take on the Twins in Minnesota. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows around 64 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny. The highs around 81. Sunny and 78 degrees on Friday. Saturday should be mostly sunny. The highs around 83. Right now, it's 82 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. 
And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. The Food and Drug Administration today authorized the first updated COVID-19 boosters since the pandemic began. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein is with us uh, with some details. Hi, Rob. Hey there, Ari. So what are these new boosters and how have they been updated? These are new versions of the Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines that have been reprogrammed to target both the original strain of the virus and, and this is the important part, the Omicron variant. Specifically, they're designed to protect against the super contagious Omicron subvariants that are infecting most people right now. So federal officials hope the new shots will shore up people's immunity, protect them against Omicron better, especially as another surge of infections is expected to hit this fall and winter, and hopefully give people immunity that lasts longer than the original shots. They might even guard against new variants that emerge. Here's the FDA's Dr. Peter Marks. If I had to say what keeps me up at night most in this pandemic, it's that we have seen lots of twists and turns that were hard to predict. So it's the unknown unknowns that really are concerning. By doing this, we've tried to mitigate against that. So how are these new boosters likely to work? You know, Rari, that's the big question, and unfortunately, no one really knows for sure. For the first time, the FDA is authorizing these vaccines based on tests in mice instead of people, combined with how people's immune systems responded to previous versions of the vaccines, including one targeting the original strain of Omicron. The FDA says that leaves no doubt that, number one, the vac shots are safe, and number two, the new boosters should cut the risk of catching the virus and getting COVID or long COVID. Here's Dr. Peter Marks again. The public can rest assured that a great deal of care has been taken by the FDA to ensure that these updated boosters meet our rigorous safety, effectiveness, and manufacturing quality standards. While many outside experts that I've been talking to agree, some are more skeptical. Why, why is that? You know, no one's worried about safety. It's clear the vaccines are very safe, but critics say mouse studies just aren't very good at predicting how vaccines work in people. And earlier vaccines, the tests on those earlier vaccines indicate they're only a bit better than the original shots at best. And so the worry is people will think these new shots protect them more than they really do. Here's John Moore. He's an immunologist at Wild Cornell Medicine. There may be a modest benefit to protection against infection, but it will be modest, which is why I say don't believe that you're getting super strong shielding against infection. And more and others also worry that the fact the vaccines were only tested in mice might make it even harder to convince people to get them. It's been a tough sell already convincing people to get their first or second boosters, and there's still plenty of people out there who haven't gotten any shots. And that's the main reason between four and 500 people are still dying every day from COVID. I'm sure many people are wondering how soon they can get these new boosters. What's the schedule? Yeah, so the CDC will decide by the end of the week exactly who should get these new boosters and how they should be used once they become available next week. The FDA authorized the Moderna booster for anyone 18 and older and the Pfizer-BioNTech booster for anyone 12 and older. But some experts think the people who really need them are those at high risk, like older people and those with other health problems. Another big question is how long to wait to get the shots. The FDA says two months since the last shot is long enough, but others say that's too short. People should wait four to six months after 
after their last shot or infection, where the new boosters may not just work very well. NPR's Rob Stein, thank you. You're welcome, Ari. Anytime. A delegation of inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency is on its way to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in southern Ukraine today. It is the largest nuclear power plant in all of Europe, and it's right on the front line, right in the middle of fighting and shelling right now. Some experts fear the plant could melt down in a way similar to what happened in Fukushima, Japan, over a decade ago. But what would a nuclear crisis like Fukushima look like in a war zone? Well, NPR's Kat Lonsdorf has spent time in both Fukushima and Ukraine and joins us now to discuss the risks. Hi, Kat. Hey, Elsa. Hey. Okay, so can we just start in Fukushima? Because you were there right before the pandemic started, touring villages that are still mostly empty 10 years out or more than 10 years out. What is it like there right now? Yeah, so one thing is that there are all of these bags of radioactive topsoil everywhere, just piles and piles of them. Cleanup crews basically have to scrape away all the topsoil because that's where the radioactive material settles. You know, recovery generally in that area has been really, really hard, really expensive. It was a big rice farming area, but that's mostly gone around the plant. So there's not really an economy anymore. And why do experts keep talking about Fukushima as a comparison to the Zaporizhia plant, as opposed to, say, like, what happened at Chernobyl? Yeah, so a lot of people think of Chernobyl when they think of nuclear disaster, which is also in Ukraine. But that disaster happened because of design flaws and human errors. Fukushima is a better comparison. It wasn't a war zone, but it was in a major disaster zone after a massive tsunami hit it, after an earthquake. And workers had a lot of trouble getting into the plant. That's true at Zaporizhia. Fukushima lost power, and the backup generators were also out. That's what caused the meltdowns. Zaporizhia lost power briefly last week. Now, fortunately, its generators switched on. And I should say something that's nice in all of this is that some of the safety systems that are new at Zaporizhia came in response to what happened at Fukushima. I spoke with Elena Perenyuk. She's a senior researcher in the Institute for Safety Problems of Nuclear Power Plants at the National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine. And she's also spent a bunch of time in Fukushima studying the disaster there. Here's what she told me with a little bit of dark humor. We keep laughing that right now all of the reactors in Ukraine, they're tsunami proof, but it is impossible to predict the missile. There's just no way they could have put enough safeguards in for war. Right. Well, if a meltdown does occur at Zaporizhia, it might look like something akin to Fukushima. But what could be different in this case? Containing it would be a huge problem. In Fukushima, it took weeks with an international effort to stabilize the plant, and that's just not possible in this war right now. Zaporizhia is, again, right on the front line, technically in Russian control. So it's not clear, like, how experts or emergency staff could get there to help even if they wanted to. Elena Pernyuk and I were playing out that terrible scenario, and she was like, look, I'm a professional. I know the risks of radiation, but would I be willing to take the risks of entering the front line in an area controlled by Russia? And she wasn't so sure. Of course, as a professional, I must. But then my husband is serving in the army, so I'm the only caregiver to my son. So I would like to live a little bit more. Dire choices. Well, if a nuclear disaster does happen, can you just give us an idea of what the long-term consequences could be, given what we've seen in Fukushima? 
Well, there has been an uptick in cancer rates in the area in Fukushima, but it's really, really hard to prove whether cancer comes directly from an accident like this or not. But the real threat here might be economic. Like Fukushima, Zaporizhia is right in the middle of some of Ukraine's most fertile land. So imagine that soil being contaminated. We've been hearing a lot about these Ukrainian grain shipments that the rest of the world is depending on. This is the land where a lot of that grain comes from. But I should say that all of it is theoretical. The IAEA is trying to inspect the plant right now, this week, and it's really in everyone's best interest to make sure something like this does not happen. That is NPR's Kat Lonsdorf. Thank you, Kat. Thank you. And this is NPR News. This is All Things Considered on WBUR. I'm Steve Brown. The MBTA is understaffed, undertrained, and has inadequate safety protocols. It's also prioritized big capital projects at the expense of everyday safety and maintenance. Those are new findings from a scathing report released today by the Federal Transit Administration. To discuss the latest in the Fed's months-long probe of the T, we're joined by reporter Laura Craigle. Hi, Laura. Hey, Steve. So, Laura, the FTA issued another report on the T just back in June. How is this new one different? The earlier report addressed some of the most urgent problems at the T, like the fact that some workers were pulling 20-hour shifts. Uh, Today's report gets into even bigger and more long-term issues at the T, as well as the state agency that oversees the T, the Department of Public Utilities. And the takeaway is that the T has a ton of work to do. The report identifies 53 problem areas that range from severe understaffing and insufficient safety management to poor communications and operating policies. And the report includes a series of directives. One of those requires a five-year assessment of the T's workforce to determine how many employees it really needs to address all of its problems, especially when it's already struggling to hire and the current staff is overwhelmed. So the feds acknowledge that this is going to be a long road for the T. Uh, Here's the FTA's Paul Kincaid during a press conference today. It's going to take a fair amount of time and unfortunately a fair amount of patience on the part of the riders of the T to get it to what we call a state of good repair. And so it's our hope that today is a turning point for the safety culture at the MBTA and the DPU, and they'll begin making the correct decisions that provide a safe, reliable ride. So, Laura, when Kincaid refers to correct decisions, what does he mean? Well, in the report, the FTA points out that in January, the T moved $500 million of its operating budget for the day-to-day stuff into its capital budget for big projects. And the feds say that this switch was not advisable, that there's been a lack of balance between current service and the longer-term projects for several years, and that those decisions are really driving many of the T's current issues, as well as jeopardizing safety for riders and workers. And I should note that the FTA is not putting all of this on the T. The feds really did call out the DPU, saying that they need to do their jobs of actually overseeing the T and ensuring the T is putting safety ahead of anything else. Are are there going to be any consequences for the T or the DPU officials? And how are they reacting to this report? Well, the FTA said it's not really in a position to punish anyone. And the feds say they don't actually see it as a time for recriminations. They want to focus on making progress. On the state level, though, we'll have to see if there are consequences. For its part, the T held a separate press conference today where officials said they are committed to safety and doing everything that the feds have ordered. General Manager Steve Poftak also announced that the T is creating a new department called the Quality, Compliance, and Oversight Office, which will head up the huge effort it'll take to try to address all of the FTA's findings. 
obviously a, uh, a a challenging day for us here at the MBTA, but also a day, uh, I believe, of opportunity. Poftak emphasized that the FTA is not taking over the T, which is something the feds can do. He highlighted that the legislature has given the T an extra $266 million this year that will be used to help make changes. And he pointed to Governor Charlie Baker today filing a supplemental budget for another $200 million. But Poftak said these problems are long in the making and will take time to solve. And he knows that the feds will be watching the T's and DPU's next moves. This is an engagement with the FTA that will go on for years. This is not the type of work that is going to be, you know, is going to be a three or six month engagement. We envision this as a multi-year effort. So, Laura, how has the Department of Public Utilities responded to this report? So in a statement, a DPU spokesman said the agency takes seriously the safety of riders and welcomes the, quote, thorough review conducted by the FTA. The statement goes on to list a number of steps DPU says it's taking, including increasing safety staffing, and says the agency is looking forward to ongoing collaboration with state and federal officials. Reporter Laura Craigle, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Steve. Right now it is 82 degrees in Boston at 449. Ahead on All Things Considered, Puerto Rican musician Residente is gearing up for his biggest fight yet, challenging the meaning of America. That's ahead here on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru in Belmont with the all-new 2022 Subaru Outback Wilderness Edition. It's summer of love at citysidesubaru.com. And Rose Art Museum, presenting Peter Sachs' Resistance, an exhibition paying tribute to resistors of oppression. Free tickets at brandeis.edu rose. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. Lows will be around 64 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny with a high around 81 degrees. Sunny and 78 degrees on Friday. Saturday should be mostly sunny. The highs will be around 83 degrees. Mostly sunny with a chance of showers on Sunday afternoon. The high around 89. Labor Day Monday will be partly sunny. The highs will be around 76 degrees. Right now it's 82 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. And the Museum of Science. Discover something new each time you visit. Summertime is limited, though your experiences at the Museum of Science are not. Tickets at MOS.org. When I talk to people in my field, I say, you hear me on the radio, even in California, or in Michigan, or in Austin. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us. To become a WBUR underwriter, go to WBUR.org sponsorship. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Puerto Rican rap star Residente dazzles audiences with songs that push them to sing and dance and to shout about their social and political frustrations. The Latin music legend has just finished a slew of concerts across the Spanish-speaking world. And NPR's Enrique Rivera caught up with Residente to talk about his music and his message. I'm at a concert in León, the largest city in the Mexican state of Guanajuato, 
a region with a rich but tragic history. The land surrounding this concert was once the epicenter of global silver production, when tens of thousands of indigenous families were forced to toil in its deadly mines. Fast forward a couple of centuries, and the descendants of those people that kept the global economy churning for so long are on hand to watch the performance of an icon. The Puerto Rican rapper, Residente, is recognized across the Spanish-speaking world for being a groundbreaking, genre-bending musician. But he's also known as a leader in Latin American political thought who knows the region's history. He has a little bit of everything, fun lyrics and a more political side, but he's able to combine them very well. Formerly the vocalist of the world-renowned hip-hop group Calle 13, Presidente has been making hits for over 15 years. He's sold millions of albums, and he holds the record for most Latin Grammy Awards with 27. His dedicated fans know the lyrics to his biggest hits as well as his most obscure songs. Presidente's cult-like following keeps him on the concert trail even during what is a lull in his career. He hasn't dropped an album since he came out with his solo debut in 2017. Where does Residente see himself right now? I'm 44. I'm writing for fun. I'm tired of touring. You know, I like the people. I, I hate flying. Uh, and sometimes I enjoy the concerts. Sometimes I don't enjoy them at all. El concierto está lleno, pero yo estoy vacío. En la industria de la música todo es mentira, mi hijo tiene que comer, así que sigo de gira. Presidente says he's reached a reflective point in his life. This shines through in his 2020 single René, named after Residente's legal first name. In it, he discusses the killing of his childhood best friend at the hands of Puerto Rican police, his struggles with depression and alcohol, his recent divorce, and his emotional roller coaster as an artist. The song begins with a recording of Flor Joglar, Presidente's mother teaching a young René a lesson on Puerto Rican history through song. René, ven, vamos a estudiar. Flor asked the child René how the indigenous Arawak-speaking people of the island, a people known as Tainos since the conquest, hit the ball while playing their native sport. ¿Con qué partes del cuerpo, piensa, jugaban pelota los indios Tainos? Ya sé, te la canto y entonces así tú te la vas aprendiendo. Cabeza, rodilla, muslos y cadera, cabeza, rodilla, muslos y cadera, cabeza, Head, knees, legs and hips. Head, knees, legs and hips. Desde pequeño quería ser beibolista, no llegué así que aprendí a batear hits por encima de una pista. Nobody believed that it was going to be, you know, that it was going to be a hit uh, because it's eight minutes. And it went viral and everyone liked it and everyone was listening to it and it was eight minutes and it's just me over a piano. René became a surprise smash for Residente. The song's music video has over 260 million views on YouTube. It was supposed to be the first song off of his new album, but then the pandemic hit and things slowed down. His most recent release, This Is Not America, continues his tradition of tackling social issues in Latin America, namely economic inequities, political persecution, 
and the often hostile role that the United States has played in the region. Everyone is American in this continent, and, and it's, it's how they took the word and made it uh, for them, you know, it's like a, another way of colonization. The video for This Is Not America gorily depicts the violence inflicted by U.S.-backed regimes in Argentina, Chile, and Colombia, as well as the CIA-directed death squads who massacred entire communities throughout Central America. So this is what you say that this is not America. And all of the things that I'm presenting are the collateral damages uh, that the U.S. created in, in Latin America. Puerto Rico, Residente's home country, is always at the forefront of his mind when he writes and performs his critical commentary. Take Calle 13's 2005 hit, Querido FBI, Dear FBI, released the day after Puerto Rican nationalist leader Filiberto Herrera Rios was gunned down by agents in a raid that many on the island felt was designed to kill. Presidente says he's received death threats and other forms of negative blowback for voicing his political views, and that he was even banned from performing in Puerto Rico. I know I opened a door for artists to say things. And the perfect example is me and Benito again. Like I said to Luis Fortuño, I got censored four years. He said the same thing a week ago or two, and was a hero. But at the time that I said it, maybe people weren't uh, ready for that, you know? But today, it appears that Puerto Rico is ready. As an example, Presidente pointed to his sometimes collaborator, the pop superstar Bad Bunny, whose legal first name is Benito. Last month, Bad Bunny threw a much-talked-about concert in San Juan, where he denounced Puerto Rico's government, and he received much praise for it. Other signs are also signaling a turn of the tide in Puerto Rico. After decades of registering just 5% or less of gubernatorial votes, the two independence-minded parties on the island combined to reach nearly a third of votes in the 2020 election. And if recent viral videos of protests on the island are any indication, the nationalist movement only seems to be gaining momentum. I asked Residente whether or not he thinks he'll see the day when Puerto Rico is an independent country. I think so. Right now, more than ever, it's there, it's right there, knocking on the door. Whether or not that day does come, Presidente seems determined to keep pushing for it. In the meantime, his fans will continue to sing along. For NPR, I'm Enrique Rivera. No me regalen más libros porque no los leo. Lo que he aprendido es porque lo veo. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 
25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. From Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at AthenaHealth.com. From TIAA, dedicated to helping people secure their financial futures with lifetime retirement income. Learn more at TIAA.org slash never run out. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Jackson, Mississippi is still without access to safe drinking water, and it's not clear when it will be available. The government is trying to navigate getting bottled water to 150,000 residents. It's Wednesday, August 31st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown, coming up the latest on the drinking water crisis in Jackson. Also, the pandemic led to a drop in life expectancy in the U.S. in 2020, but a new analysis shows that it fell again last year. In most other high-income countries, 2021 was a year where life expectancy began to rebound. There are also some striking racial disparities in this latest data. And remembering Princess Diana 25 years after she was killed in a car crash in Paris. It's 5.01, now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. The Justice Department is pushing back against former President Donald Trump's request that a special master be appointed to review documents the FBI seized from his Florida estate earlier this month. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. The Justice Department alleges that obstructive conduct took place at Trump's estate after documents were allegedly concealed or removed from a storage room in the months prior to the FBI search. The department also says the appointment of an outside arbiter to review the seized records is unnecessary and would significantly harm national security interests. The search at Mar-a-Lago is connected to a Justice Department investigation into whether Trump mishandled classified documents, specifically records that he took from the White House when he left office. Trump has until 8 p.m. Eastern time to submit his response with the court. The judge in the case has scheduled a hearing for Thursday. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A team of UN experts is in southern Ukraine to inspect a nuclear complex that's been shelled for weeks. NPR's Frank Langfitt has more from Odessa. The inspectors are traveling from Kyiv through mostly Ukrainian-controlled territory to the Zaporizhia power plant in southern Ukraine. However, Russian forces control the plant, and the team will have to cross the war's front lines to get there. The Russian-installed occupation government, which is not internationally recognized, said it would not issue the team a pass today, and the group would arrive at the plant Thursday. The International Atomic Energy Agency says the team will look at safety systems, assess damage, and check on the conditions under which the Ukrainian workers operated. Last week, fighting temporarily cut power to the facility. Operators then used diesel generators to keep water pumping to cool the reactor cores to prevent a meltdown. Frank Langford, NPR News, Odessa. 
The Food and Drug Administration has authorized the first major upgrade in COVID-19 vaccine boosters. NPR's Rob Stein reports. The vaccines are reformulated versions of Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines targeted to protect against the Omicron variant. The reprogrammed shots are designed to bolster fading immunity, especially against the highly contagious Omicron subvariants that most people are catching now. The federal government plans to make the new boosters available starting next week. Public health officials hope they will contain a possible fall and winter surge. Some experts worry the new boosters won't live up to expectations, but others say the new shots could provide enough of a bridge to minimize the impact, especially among the most vulnerable. Rob Stein, NPR News. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 280 points. The Nasdaq down 66. S&P 500 down 31. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Boston City Councilors are at odds over how the body has reacted to old allegations of sexual assault levied against Councilor Ricardo Arroyo from when he was a teenager. Today was the first council meeting since Council President Ed Flynn stripped Arroyo of his leadership positions in response. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning reports on the back and forth. Councilor Frank Baker rescinded a request he made for police records into Arroyo, but not before he said this. I want to just end with this. If a predator continues to roam, the killing field only becomes larger. Councilor Kendra Lara also took back her request for records about Baker's old drug conviction. She says she filed it to illustrate a point. People of color in this city and on this council are not only held to higher standards, they are also disciplined in harsher ways by leadership. Arroyo has denied the allegations against him. He was never charged. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. Today's meeting also saw members of the gallery shouting about the Arroyo matter. The group was removed from the chamber before a scuffle ensued just outside the meeting. Governor Baker is filing a supplemental budget today that includes money for the MBTA, Health and Human Services, and School Safety. It also accounts for nearly $3 billion in refunds to taxpayers due under state law regarding surplus revenue. Boston streets are abuzz with college students ready to move into their new homes for the school year. Landlords sometimes have as little as one day to get rental properties ready, so it can be hectic. WBUR's Vanessa Ochovillo has more on how Boston is preparing for a smooth move-in. Students are entitled to clean and safe housing. And the mayor's chief of operations, Dion Irish, says landlords should meet the standard despite the time crunch. We understand that there is a short turnover window between tenants moving out and new tenants moving in, but they should have staff available at these units to make sure that they're getting cleaned up. Inspectional Services Commissioner Sean Lydon says many landlords do cooperate. I think in the last probably 15 years, the owners of the properties, particularly in Austin and Brighton, have really shaped up and they've delivered very nice products lately. Dozens of inspectors will walk through neighborhoods in the coming days. They'll look for problems, anything from a broken smoke detector to a landlord failing to post their contact information. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochavillo. In sports, the Red Sox try to avoid the sweep tonight when they take on the Twins out in Minnesota. The forecast mostly clear tonight. Lows will be around 64 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny, high around 81, sunny and 78 degrees on Friday. Right now it's 82 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In Jackson, Mississippi, thousands of people are desperately searching for water. The city's treatment plant failed Monday after historic rain and flooding led to a drop in water pressure. President Biden has declared a disaster which triggers federal aid, and the state is sending in the National Guard. But... Many residents are frustrated because this is a disaster that just keeps repeating. NPR's Jennifer Ludden is in Jackson and joins us now. Hi, Jennifer. Hi there. Okay, so this is day three since, what, more than 180,000 people were told that their tap water was dangerous or they lost their water entirely. What is the situation as of now? You know, city and state officials continue to say they are working on it, but there's just no firm timeline here. Um, And so, you know, city and aid groups have been handing out water around Jackson, you know, until a fuller scale scale distribution gets set up. Uh, But the demand is a lot more than the supply. I found Beatrice Gilmore in a long line of cars wrapped around a Walmart parking lot today. She was so excited because she's been in other lines, but the water ran out a few cars ahead of hers. And this time she was one of the last to get it. She got one case for her and her sister. I'm going to try to use lift for the drink and take a sponge bath. (laughs) You can't do it for nothing else. And uh, look cooking as much as we can, and that's about it. What have you been eating? Canned food, heating up stuff, and, uh, you know, just stuff where you can't use a lot of water. And so you have no water? Just a little, little pressure water, and that's it. Pretty, yeah, pretty much no water. And is it cloudy or brown? Sort of brownish, and it's just awful. Gilmore says she won't even give the water to her dogs, mm-hmm. although the mayor today did say people can bathe in it. Okay. Well, now this lack of water has also shut down schools and businesses. How are people even coping with that? Yeah, it's a lot. I met Aisha Stevenson in the water line. Unfortunately, she had just gotten there a bit too late. Um, She has a five and seven year old who are now home doing remote learning. And, you know, schools are boiling water to make breakfast and lunch for students to pick up. Um, The poverty rate in Jackson is 25%. A lot of families really rely on those meals. Um, Stevenson is a cook at a Waffle House, and that had to shut down because of this. She says it's her third day out of work without pay. Mm. And what's really frustrating for her is that, you know, just early last year, there was another water crisis after a historic freeze. She says she never really went back to tap water after that. No, Uh -uh. I can't use it. My kids get sick fast. I can't. uh -uh. So you use bottled water all the time? Yes. You never went back to the tap since then? Mm Mm-mm. Wow. I can't even picture myself drinking it. No. Mm Mm-mm. That must be expensive. It is. You go broke buying food and water all the time. Yeah, it's very expensive. You know, so she's pretty mad that families like hers are having to shoulder this really longstanding burden. Absolutely. Is there any hope that this might be the crisis that actually leads to larger solutions? 
Well, you know, there's a lot of tension over this longstanding problem and who's to blame for it. Uh, but we have heard state and city officials say they're working together. Um, basically, you've got a city that took a major economic hit after schools desegregated in the 70s and many white families just left. The mayor says the tax base is just too small to pay for all this. Um, now, there, there could be potentially tens of millions of dollars coming in because of pandemic aid and the infrastructure law that Congress passed. But to really fix what's wrong here, this aging, leaky water system, the mayor says you're going to need a billion dollars or more. That is NPR's Jennifer Ludden in Jackson, Mississippi. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. A year and a half after rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol, Americans are still sorting through what drove the attack. A small Australian news outlet called Crikey argued recently that the Murdoch family bears some responsibility. Fox Corp CEO Lachlan Murdoch is now suing Crikey for defamation. But the political news site is not alone in its criticism. Former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull recently said that Rupert Murdoch, Lachlan's father, has done more to undermine American democracy than any other individual alive today. Malcolm Turnbull, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you very much. Those are very strong words. What led you to conclude that, as you put it, Rupert Murdoch has done more to undermine American democracy than any other individual alive today? Well, he's responsible for Fox News. Fox News has played by far the largest single part in the polarization of American politics, in the amplification of political hatred. I would challenge anyone, any of your listeners, to nominate which individual alive today has done more to undermine American democracy than Rupert Murdoch. The Murdoch media empire is arguably more influential in Australia than it is in the U.S. And so can you describe, during your years as prime minister from 2015 to 2018, what it's like to govern a country when one family owns news outlets that have so much influence over how current events are perceived? Well, look, it is very challenging. They operate more as a political party or a political organisation You know, they meddle in politics very directly. You know, my prime ministership came to an end in 2018 and Rupert Murdoch himself was very actively involved, not simply campaigning against me in his newspapers because I wasn't sufficiently right-wing politically and deferential enough to him, but also he solicited the support of other media proprietors. But isn't some of this the nature of a free press, that there will be powerful media organisations that wield their power in ways that you disapprove of? Well, I'm not suggesting they should be censored. I'm just saying they should be held to account. I mean... What does that look like in your view? Well, what that means is that, firstly, you've got to recognise that you've got to be prepared to call it out. I mean, most people who are registered Republicans, according to pollsters, believe Trump's big lie, namely that Joe Biden stole the 2020 election. Now, the context of those falsehoods, and the falsehoods themselves, have been distributed, amplified, promoted through right-wing media. Fox News is not the only source of this madness, but it is by far the single most influential one. You know the Murdoch family pretty well. Why do you think someone like Lachlan, with the power and influence of the Fox empire, would go after a small news outlet like Crikey? Well, it's just stupid, right? You know, Murdoch publications, large and small, and broadcast outlets are being sued for defamation all the time. You know, it's part of their business. And they have regularly complained about 
you know, defamation laws being too harsh. And For context, yeah. we should also mention that Murdoch and Fox are fending off a pair of defamation cases in the United States from election technology and voting machine companies about false claims of fraud in the 2020 elections in which these companies are claiming that Fox and Fox contributors defamed them. Yes, of course. Well, that's right. Americans are seeing their democracy trashed, and it is being trashed in large part by right-wing media. Look, it's not for me to tell Americans how to run their country. I had a crack at running my own for three years. But I just say this to you. What happens in Washington is as consequential for us as it is for you. Nations like ours depend on the maintenance of American democracy. We have a huge stake in it. And so the biggest challenge to the United States is not Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin. It's the animosity, the division, the anti-democratic movements within the United States itself. Malcolm Turnbull was the Prime Minister of Australia from 2015 to 2018. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you so much. And in response to the former Prime Minister's comments, a Fox corporate spokesperson told us Fox News routinely has a larger audience than CNN and MSNBC combined and the most politically diverse audience of any cable news network. For the first time in a century, the life expectancy of Americans has dropped for two years in a row. That sobering fact comes from a provisional analysis out today from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. As NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports, the driving force of this trend is COVID-19, but there's more to the story. Life expectancy in the U.S. has been on a forward march for decades, ticking up a bit year after year, all the way up to 79 years in 2019. The pandemic brought that march to a sudden halt. In 2020, life expectancy dropped to 77 years. And in 2021, it dropped again to 76 years. Dr. Stephen Wolf calls these numbers disturbing. He's a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. In most other high-income countries, 2021 was a year where life expectancy began to rebound. Having that context makes the U.S. results all the more tragic. There are some striking racial disparities in the data. Elizabeth Aria of CDC's National Center for Health Statistics, who was the lead author of the report, says the most dramatic drop in life expectancy was among American Indian or Alaska Native people. To see that the decline over the two-year period for this population was 6.6 years was jarring. She notes life expectancy for that population is now 65 years, the same as it was for the whole population in the 1940s. But there is a bit of good news in the data. For the Hispanic population and the non-Hispanic Black population, who both lost a lot of years during the first year of the pandemic, the loss was a lot smaller during the second year. For white Americans, life expectancy actually dropped more in 2021 than in 2020, even though vaccines and treatments became available. Now, if you take a step back, the U.S. wasn't doing very well on life expectancy compared to other countries even before the pandemic, says John Haga. He's a retired division director at the National Institute on Aging, part of NIH. We're now behind countries like Slovenia, Costa Rica, and Greece. 
He laments that nobody seems to get fired up about changing things to help Americans live longer. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. And thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 81 degrees in Boston at 519. Ahead on All Things Considered, remembering the death of Princess Diana, who died in a Paris car crash 25 years ago today. In business news, the state lottery is keeping an eye on a pair of concerning trends to the agency. The agency says overall sales were up in July because of the Mega Millions lottery's billion-dollar jackpot. However, Kino and Scratch ticket sales dropped by 5 and 6 percent, respectively. The lottery says those two categories account for nearly 88 percent of lottery sales. Wall Street today, stocks down yet again. The Dow was down 278 points at 31,513. NASDAQ was off 68 points at 11,815. And the S&P 500 was off 31 points at 39.55. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Coming to City Space on Tuesday, September 20th, here and now co-host Robin Young joins NPR correspondent Nina Totenberg for a conversation about her book, Dinners with Ruth. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows will be around 64 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny, the high around 81. Sunny and 78 degrees on Friday. The weekend looks pretty nice. Right now it's 81 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Today marks 25 years since Princess Diana was killed in a car crash in Paris. News of her death dominated headlines and shocked her fans around the world. Her funeral was broadcast live by international media, including NPR. The funeral procession has been underway for about an hour and a half. It has just reached St. James Palace, where the um, funeral cortege was joined by um, Prince Charles, by the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, of course by Diana's sons, uh, Harry and William, and uh, by her brother, Earl Spencer. Her death in 1997 became a viral moment before most of us really knew what viral moments were. Tina Brown has written extensively about Princess Diana and the royal family. She's author of The Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil. And we've invited her to look back at that moment 25 years ago to better understand what the coverage of the event signified. Welcome to All Things Considered. Delighted to be here. Thank you. This was one of those moments where people remember where they were when they heard the news. Can you take us back to your memory of that day? Yes. In fact, it was all the more poignant to me because I had simply 
recently seen her uh, in July of that same year, sort of six weeks before when she was in town in New York for the auction of her dresses for charity at Christie's. Mm. So I had last seen her so vibrant, so alive, so much a woman on, on a path for sort of an exciting next act. And then to find, of course, to be woken up in the morning as I was at our house in Long Island by a voice saying, can you share me your memories with me, your memories of Princess Diana? It was absolutely inconceivable that this vibrant person, you know, was no longer with us. Why do you think her death had such a huge impact on people all over the world, whether or not they followed the royal family? Well, I think what really drew people to Diana was that, you know, for 16 years, millions of, of Britons and, and people around the world have felt themselves ready to be not spectators, but participants in her evolution and her struggles. This beautiful, shy teenager who became the fairy princess, then the wronged wife who searched for love and hid her agony with eating disorders, and then the passionate crusader who became, you know, even more beautiful as she shared the miseries of others. You know, she really subsumed those miseries into her humanitarian work and in doing so made everybody feel included. And that was what was so really ironic, essentially, that this daughter of privilege became such an idol to the masses. Her death and her funeral took place in 1997 when the era of instant news and the internet was just beginning. So how do you fit those events into our understanding today of viral celebrity news? Well, I mean, Diana was the first great glamour icon to die in the age of round-the-world, round-the-clock multimedia. I mean, we've since then got used to these kind of massive worldwide events when a major figure dies, although nothing yet has, has equaled her, her passing, except we will find when the Queen dies, which will be even more extraordinary, I believe. The car crash happened as she was being chased by paparazzi. And so how do you fit that in with our present-day moment where everyone is constantly using our phone cameras to surveil and document ourselves and each other all the time? Well, I sometimes think, you know, how much worse, if it's possible, the sort of hysteria would have been if Diana had died in the age of the iPhone. I mean, for a start, her death in the tunnel, which was already being kind of obscenely snapped by these photographers, you would have had people drawing up in their cars and everybody holding up their phones and it streaming live to the world. As it was, there was still a certain amount of, of sort of respect that a dying princess's last hours, that those photographs actually weren't revealed until much, much later uh, at, at the great protest of her, of her two sons, who were absolutely appalled to imagine that their mother's last dying moments were actually captured on film and shared with the world. It, you know, in the age of the iPhone, you wouldn't have been able to keep that back. So, uh, you know, and I also wonder whether or not the conspiracy theories that accrued around Diana in the period after her death of, you know, was it to do with the royal family? Was she murdered? All of those feverish speculations which led to her inquest etc. You know, in the age of conspiracy theories now, with the internet being so powerful in the spreading of those kind of rumors, would that have burst open in a way that would have been untenable? Hmm. Do you think young people in Britain or elsewhere today know about Diana, or is she just another figure in history? They do know about Diana. I mean, Diana has this ability to sort of reach across the ages. I mean, there is a fairy story element, obviously. I mean, her beauty, the fact that her life was cut short at 36, you know, rather like Marilyn Monroe, like JFK, you know, there are certain icons whose early death, their unfinished life 
leads people, I think, to want to hear that story again and again. And it is a narrative that has everything in it, including the two uh, handsome princes, her sons, who are left to carry her torch. Mm. And really, you know, Prince Harry has become sort of, in many ways, the incarnation of much of Diana's um, Spencer emotional temperament. I mean, he's, he's very much like his mother in his desire to throw bombs. That's author, journalist, and editor Tina Brown remembering the death of Princess Diana 25 years ago today. Thank you so much. Thank you. $3 movie tickets are coming soon to a theater near you this Saturday. We're talking any show, any format, including IMAX, at more than 3,000 participating theaters. It's being billed as a celebration, National Cinema Day. But we asked critic Bob Mondello what it says about the state of the film industry. The first sign that pandemic-weary audiences might actually come back to cinemas in force was the cheers. Packed houses greeted Spider-Man No Way Home, and audiences ultimately rewarded their favorite web-slinger with almost $2 billion in ticket sales, a number that did not require any qualifiers, like best of the pandemic era. Spidey's pal Doctor Strange and Jurassic Dinosaurs each collected another billion in the spring, and then summer brought Minions and Thor and Tom Cruise, whose Top Gun Maverick is still going strong, as it closes in on one and a half billion. So moviegoers are back, right? sort of. Attendance has certainly grown this year, but it's still only at about two-thirds of pre-pandemic levels. Young audiences are fully back, but older moviegoers, the sort who should have powered Bullet Train and Elvis to bigger numbers, are still hesitant. So with just a few days of summer vacation left, theater owners are throwing a sort of Hail Mary pass, a one-day bargain, any show for $3, which is a price not seen at most theaters since Elliot and his new best bud took flight 40 years ago. It's an industry-wide promotion to deal with a looming industry-wide challenge. Fall is always a slower time for movie theaters, and if things slow from their current levels, theaters will be in serious trouble. So about three-quarters of all U.S. cinemas have signed on to participate on Saturday, from local repertory houses to AMC, Regal, Cinemark, more than 30,000 screens in all. You'll want to check to be sure your local theater is among them, but if it is, for a snappy three bucks plus tax, you'll be able to see Top Gun Maverick in IMAX, or Thor Love and Thunder in 3D, or take a family of four to a kid flick for about what a single ticket would usually cost. (laughs) The theory being that once the ice is broken, patrons will be more likely to come back. Streaming's not going away, of course, and the pandemic, though it seems to be receding, could still throw a wrench in the works. But theater owners figure that after two years of not seeing an important segment of their audience, the folks that turn awards contenders into hits, it can't hurt to remind them that there's a kick to being audience members rather than an audience of one. And who knows, maybe with the money they save, they'll spring for the jumbo popcorn. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 82 degrees in Boston at 530. Ahead on All Things Considered, schools are open in Philadelphia, but tens of thousands of students have been sent home early this week because it's too hot in their unair conditioned classrooms. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows will be around 64 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny. The highs will be around 81 
Sunny and 78 degrees on Friday. Saturday should be mostly sunny. The highs around 83. Mostly sunny with a chance of showers on Sunday afternoon. The highs around 89 degrees. Labor Day will be sunny. I feel like my whole world was spinning and everything was going in, in slow motion so that the shots were just like boom, yeah. boom. You so, know when you, but they were it's so like loud. when you're watching a movie and you see it happening, but you're not there. That's it's exactly like out what it of body experience. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden has declared a federal emergency for the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, that's left large portions of the state capital and surrounding areas without water. People continue to wait in long lines at distribution sites for bottled water after flooding this week exacerbated long-standing problems in the city's water treatment plants. Here's White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre. The Environmental Protection Agency is deploying a subject matter expert to support the emergency assessment of the Jackson water treatment plants and is working to expedite delivery of experiment, sorry, equipment needed to repair Jackson's water treatment plant. We are committed to helping the people of Jackson and the Mississippi and the state of Mississippi during this urgent time of need. She says the administration is also committed to helping rebuild the city's aging water infrastructure. Military tensions between China and Taiwan are the highest they've been in more than 25 years. NPR's Emily Fang tells us Taiwan says it will fire back in self-defense if Chinese military vessels get too close to the island. Earlier this week, Taiwan said it shot back at Chinese drones encircling one of its islands, which is also right off the coast of China. Now, Taiwan says it could hit back harder if Chinese vessels come too close to Taiwanese waters. The National Army will counterattack with no exception. That's according to Lin Wenhuang, a Taiwan military official. China is now regularly flying fighter jets or sailing ships close to Taiwan and the waters that separate it from China's east coast after a string of U.S. government visits to the island. The concern is such a frequent show of military intimidation could accidentally provoke a response that tips the region into an actual war. Emily Fang, NPR News. On Wall Street, stocks finished broadly lower today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Federal authorities investigating the MBTA have released their full report on the transit system's safety issues. WBUR's Beth Healy has more. The Federal Transit Administration's report orders the T to address 53 different safety areas. Those range from understaffing and employee training to improving the culture inside the T. Paul Kincaid is an FTA spokesman. It is going to be a, an effort for the T to staff up to deliver the service that the people of Massachusetts expect. But as we said, this is an opportunity for them to begin creating the safety culture that allows them to do that. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak says the T needs to hire 2,000 new workers to address the FTA's directives. It also has set up a new office inside the agency to oversee the work ordered today. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Beth Healy. Former Massachusetts Secretary of Transportation Jim Aloisi says today's report is not a surprise. He tells Radio Boston one poor decision by the MBTA came a year ago when it shifted a half billion dollars out of the operating budget used to hire people into capital projects. The FTA explicitly called that out today. And we've been calling that out as a mistake of the highest magnitude. 
Aloisi says today's report by the FTA shows the T has not put resources into routine maintenance for safety. A government investigation is underway into whether Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins violated a federal law that limits political activities by government employees. At issue is an Andover fundraiser that Rollins attended featuring First Lady Jill Biden. A spokesperson for Rollins declined comment to the Associated Press on the investigation. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is pulling her endorsement of City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo in the Suffolk District Attorney race, while also criticizing his opponent, incumbent Kevin Hayden. Wu says the past allegations of sexual assault are deeply troubling, but adds the leak about those allegations appears to be politically motivated since the case was closed 15 years ago without charges. She adds she continues to have serious concerns about D.A. Hayden's judgment in prosecuting cases and will not endorse him either. Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren and Congresswoman Ayanna Presley have also pulled their endorsements of Arroyo. In sports, the Red Sox will try to avoid the sweep tonight when they take on the Twins again out in Minnesota. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows around 64 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny. The highs will be around 81. Sunny and 78 degrees on Friday. Right now it's 81 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from OCLC through worldcat.org committed to helping users conduct research or find the latest bestseller by accessing libraries around the world. Learn more at worldcat.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. The school district of Philadelphia welcomed more than 115,000 students back to the classroom this week and then released many of them from school early due to the late summer heat. In Philadelphia, most of the city's schools lack central air conditioning. Aubrey Uhas of WHYY in Philadelphia has been talking with folks about the problem. Hey, Aubrey. Hey, Ari. Temperatures in Philly have been in the high 80s and low 90s this week, which can make it hard for anybody to focus in a building without air conditioning. How are families and teachers dealing with the decision to close some schools early? Yeah, there's definitely been some frustration. The district says, you know, they try to give parents as much notice as possible, but that just doesn't always happen. 18 schools were added to the district's list of already 100 schools on Tuesday morning. Uh, So parents really didn't have time to plan. Several of Tijuana Despi's kids attend Spring Garden Elementary in central Philadelphia. And some of the classrooms at Spring Garden have window units, but not all of them. She says her kids do not like to be hot, especially her older daughter, Alyssa. She don't like to be hot. But if they get like get like air conditioners or essential air, I think that would be great. Because then we got to come get them out early. It messes up our day. Despy sees the lack of air conditioning as an equity issue. And that's because the district's new dismissal policy only closes schools with inadequate air conditioning, which means some kids get to spend more time learning than others. I also spoke to a teacher at a school that on paper has enough air conditioners to keep the building cool. But in reality, he said that isn't the case. Some of the window units aren't working this week, and the building has been pretty uncomfortable with temperatures in the cafeteria and gymnasium registering in the 90s. But why don't all of Philadelphia's schools have air conditioning? Yeah, 
that that's the question. And the answer is because a lot of the buildings are just really, really old. The average age is 75 years, and their electrical systems can't support central air in most cases. Um, and in some cases, they can't even support window units in every single classroom. Over the summer, the district installed 500 new window units where they could. Uh, but even with that, nearly 60 percent of the schools still lack sufficient cooling systems. So this clearly is not a new problem, but is it happening more often lately? Yeah. So the, the problem is that, you know, they've dealt with this in the past, but there's more hot days later in the summer and there's an earlier start to the school year. You know, in the last couple of years, they've started before Labor Day. So it's just become more of an issue. Uh, schools without sufficient AC are supposed to close if classroom temperatures are expected to reach 90 degrees or more. And that was the situation on Monday, the first day of school, when building engineers clocked high temperatures inside many, many buildings. That led the district to close more than 100 schools three hours early, both yesterday and today, to make sure that students and teachers didn't overheat. I spoke to the president of the local teachers union, Jerry Jordan, about this, and he agreed with the decision to close some schools early. Because if you don't have air conditioning, in the buildings, it's very, very hard for children to concentrate and for a classroom to really function uh, the way that it should. Yeah, and it can also be dangerous. You know, a large number of children in Philadelphia have respiratory problems like asthma. Jordan says his organization and others have been calling on the district to come up with the resources necessary to fully cool all of its buildings. But the problem is there's billions of dollars in unmet capital needs. That coupled with extensive scope of work needed and the sheer number of projects just makes it a gargantuan task. And officials say they are working on it, but it won't be fully completed until 2027. Aubrey Juhas is WHYY's education reporter. Thanks for speaking with us today. You're welcome. Happy to do it. For decades last century, racism in the federal government's loan programs for farmers drove many black farmers deep into debt. Many lost their land. And that is one reason why last year's pandemic relief package included billions of dollars in loan forgiveness for black and other minority farmers. But then that federal program run by the Department of Agriculture got ensnared in lawsuits. As NPR's Adrian Florido reports, the program's fate says a lot about the challenges in President Biden's promise to pursue racial justice in government. Jasmine Ratliff was thrilled last year when the loan forgiveness program got through Congress. There was a glimmer of hope there once we saw in the legislation that this debt relief would be for black farmers. She's a farmer who leads the National Black Food and Justice Alliance. It was clear, she says, who would get loans forgiven. The legislation was specifically race-based, and in order for legislation to correct race-based discrimination, it has to be explicit. But then white farmers in several states sued. A judge put the program on hold. Fast forward to earlier this month when Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act. It repealed that debt relief program for black and other minority farmers and replaced it with one that makes no mention of race, aiming instead to help, quote, distressed farmers and those who've experienced, quote, discrimination. Ratliff and many black farmers are angry. There's been a blatant watering down of the language, the vagueness of that language. It leaves black farmers expected to trust the USDA to actually ensure that black farmers receive the debt relief in which they are due. That's because who gets loans forgiven will depend now on how the USDA defines discrimination. If it's expanded beyond race, many black farmers fear the program won't be effective in atoning for the USDA's racist history. In a call with reporters last week, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack said the agency has not started discussing who will qualify. 
on the discrimination side, I think it's we just have not had a chance to meet as a team to have any conversation about precisely how that program would be structured. It's something we're going to want to think carefully about. Kim Ford Masrui directs the University of Virginia's Center for the Study of Race and Law. He's not surprised that once it got tangled up in lawsuits, the government replaced a race-based program with one that is race-neutral. It's safer to use race-neutral language. The trend in the courts has been to strike down race-explicit policies, he says. That's requiring the government to find workarounds, like using eligibility criteria that serve as proxies for race, things like income. So it's a kind of compromise. It's more politically palatable. It's legally safer. Uh, but it, it definitely makes it less effective at addressing the race-specific harm of racial discrimination. In his first official act as president, Joe Biden signed an executive order to advance racial equity across the federal government. But the fate of the loan forgiveness program for black farmers shows the kind of legal hurdles that federal agencies face when they try to do that. Dorothy Brown is a law professor at Emory University. Anytime in this climate with this Supreme Court, you're trying to help folks of color, you're going to get a lawsuit against you. That should not stop the government from aggressively pursuing that goal, she says. Though in this case, she acknowledges it may be seeking a pragmatic solution. A program targeting black farmers is useless if the courts throw it out. A well-designed race-neutral program may achieve similar goals. They should be able to figure out a way to prioritize those who the USDA has acknowledged having discriminated against. Melanie Allen is program director for the Black Farmer Fund. It helps black farmers find grants and other types of non-traditional low-interest loans that don't saddle them with unpayable debt. She says she's hopeful the USDA will find a way to target its loan forgiveness to black farmers. But at the same time, we're, we're not naive and we're not going to be putting all of our eggs in one basket, hoping for the USDA to all of a sudden truly liberate and serve the needs of black farmers. Black people's farms are still at stake, she says, and it's why black farmers are organizing to find new ways to save them. Adrian Florido, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In Michigan, a proposed amendment to the state constitution to protect abortion rights has hit another roadblock. Michigan's elections panel deadlocked today along partisan lines, meaning there's potential it will not make it to ballots in November. Abortion rights supporters are expected to appeal to the state Supreme Court, but time is running out before ballots have to be printed. Rick Pluta of the Michigan Public Radio Network is outside the courthouse in Lansing. Hey, Rick. Hey, Ari. How are you? All right. What happened today? Well, um, the Michigan Board of State Canvassers, it's this bipartisan election board, they didn't vote to approve the amendment to move to the ballot. There was a party line deadlock. They need a majority and some level of bipartisan bipartisan support, and, and that just didn't happen. And so this means the group behind the amendment uh, will now go directly to the state Supreme Court, bypassing lower courts. But, you know, like you said, this needs to get done like next week. Time is short. And that's important here for Michiganders who support abortion, abortion rights because, well, there's a law, it's almost not quite 100 years old, that would make abortion legal following um, the repeal of Roe versus Wade. But um, that's been 
basically held back by um, court decisions. And what this campaign wants to do is to make sure that there wouldn't be another court decision that would lift this and it would just make sure that abortion rights are protected in the state constitution if voters adopt it. Was the deadlock just purely partisan ideological disagreement or, or what was the deadlock over today? Okay, well, I mean, this is supposed to be a board that deals with technical issues, but yeah, it was a uh, partisan deadlock. And opponents of the amendment say that the petition form that voters signed, and that was more than 700,000 people, was kind of a mess. There were some typos, there were formatting errors, in some places there were missing spaces between words so that they were all just kind of pushed together. They argue that what a lot of voters signed was as a practical matter, just illegible. And of course, you know, the people who are for the amendment were saying, well, voters did know what they signed and that this board shouldn't be stepping in and trying to, you know, read minds that people signed it because they wanted it on the ballot. How does this get resolved? Well, um, the next step is the Michigan Supreme Court, the state's highest court. Cases like this go all the way to the top. And that's a good thing because this has to be decided very quickly. The language needs to be sent to ballot printers, and the deadline for that is uh, September 9th. And we should point out that, you know, Michigan isn't alone in this. There, There are states such as California and Vermont that they have similar state constitutional abortion rights amendments that are supposed to go before voters in November. So this is kind of a a national thing. Just briefly, is this likely to affect other items on the ballot in November, other races? Oh, sure. Well, we've got statewide races for governor, attorney general, secretary of state, and now abortion rights has catapulted to the uh, top of this. And Democrats, including Governor Gretchen Whitmer, are really trying to uh, push that. That's Rick Pluta of the Michigan Public Radio Network. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Ari. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 81 degrees in Boston at 548. Ahead on WBUR's All Things Considered, we'll have a conversation with the author of the novel Peach Blossom Spring, a multi-generational story of war and migration. That's ahead here on WBUR. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Just go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 64 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny. The highs around 81. Sunny and 78 degrees on Friday. Saturday should be mostly sunny. The highs will be around 83. Mostly sunny with a chance of showers on Sunday afternoon. The highs will be around 89 degrees. For Labor Day Monday, it'll be partly sunny. The highs around 76. Right now, 81 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Huntington Theatre. Presenting Sing Street, a new musical based on the hit film from the team that brought you once. Embracing the new wave sounds of the 80s, This joyous Broadway-bound musical is an ode to young love and celebrates the power of music to lift you up. Huntington Calderwood BCA through October 2nd, HuntingtonTheater.org. 
As floods ravage Pakistan, the Minister for Climate Change asks for help from the international community, especially from countries with a larger carbon footprint. There is no reason why a 1% or less than 1% emitter like Pakistan should be asked to do this on their own. Who carries the burden of climate change? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. There's an ancient Chinese story first told by a poet more than a thousand years ago about a place called Peach Blossom Spring. It's a paradise full of peach trees bursting with clouds of blooms. A fisherman stumbles upon this magical place, which is removed from all the social and political problems his world is so familiar with. And he must decide whether to stay in this wondrous place or return to where he came from. Well, Peach Blossom Spring is now the title of Melissa Fu's debut novel set many centuries later, a story about three generations of a Chinese family trying to decide where to stay, where to belong. They grapple with the repercussions of China's war with Japan, the Chinese Civil War, and exodus to Taiwan. It's a story of dislocation, and it asks, can you belong to more than one home? Initially, I remember being quite curious about his past, and then somehow it was clear that we really shouldn't be asking, and he didn't want to talk about it. So we pretty much stopped, um, we meaning myself and I've got two older brothers. Um, I liked the fact that he was Chinese and, and that I was half Chinese. I thought that was very interesting and exciting. But uh, after, after a little while, it just sort of became something rather taboo. You write that eventually, many years later, on Christmas Day in 1998, your father, he suddenly started sharing a few stories about his history, and and you instantly started taking notes. I was just curious, at the time, what did you think you were going to do with those notes? I just knew I needed to take them. I I think there was some thought of making a family tree, because I have, along with those notes, a big, big piece of paper where I sorted, tried to make a family tree. I don't know what I thought I was going to do with them. I just knew that I needed to hold on to them uh, wherever we went. I just always knew where they were. And then the the strange thing about those notes is um, when he knew I was working on this novel, so I'm jumping in time here. I hope that's okay. And my mom said that I had them. He didn't remember having ever told me. And, and my brother, he wow. said, I didn't tell them anything. Wow. And, but But he did. Right, he did. Well, let's talk about the story that unfolds in your novel. Mm-hmm. And, and here I want to focus in particular on Renshu's journey, because he and his mom end up fleeing China because of the Chinese Civil War. They go to Taiwan. And then Renshu, he eventually emigrates to the U.S. to pursue graduate studies. And when he moves to the U.S., he starts going by the name Henry. What's interesting is that you, as the author, you only refer to this character by his American name from that point forward. Why is that? Why is he only Henry? He's only Henry except for his mom still thinks of him as Renshu from that point forward. It was a switch. You know, I think initially he chooses a Western name so that it's easier for other people he meets and Americans, Westerners, to pronounce his name. And everyone's doing it. You know, everyone everyone chooses a name. Yeah, my father, Zhang Qinghai, goes by Chin. 
<laughs> like the chin on your face yeah. is how he <laughs> But then it's actually a change of, of who he is. I think it's not just the change of label, but once he goes to America, it's a new life. It's a life away from his mom in China. Now she's in Taiwan. It's he kind of has to start over who yeah. he thinks he is and how he sees his world. And especially when he makes a decision to stay and not go back to Taiwan. And so so he's Henry and and Dao Renshu Renshu is somebody else. Right. Well, Henry, he does start to truly leave his other life behind. He he fearfully avoids standing out as too Chinese yeah. in America. Can you explain his personal reasons for that? I think he has learned through his experiences in, in the book, the character realizes that things aren't always what they seem and you can't trust anyone and everyone. There are so many different loyalties back in Taiwan and then further back in China. I think it's not that he doesn't want to stick out as too Chinese. It's just that he doesn't want to stick out at all. And that fear of standing out, it extends to how he eventually wants to raise his daughter, Lily. Henry's wife is white and Lily, I mean, she's very curious about exploring the Chinese side of her history kind of like you were when you were younger. But Henry actively discourages her from learning to speak Mandarin, from learning about her culture. Explain that piece of that. So he wants to protect her. Everything for him, the most important thing for Henry is to protect family, whether it's trying to protect his mom in Taiwan or his daughter and wife in America. And he thinks that if she can't speak Chinese, if she's not part of the Chinese community, then no one can ask her questions that she doesn't know the answer to. He just thinks that it's a way of keeping her away from not only any sort of murky political problems, but also he wants to protect her from the sadness of his own childhood and youth. And so he just yeah. thinks, well, just leave it behind, leave it behind. You're, you're safe, you're happy, you have enough to eat, you have a nice house. Why ask questions about sad times? Yeah. The last question is, I want to ask you about the title of this book, Peach Blossom Spring. It refers to that old Chinese story about choosing between a new world and your old world. And I'm curious, where do you think Henry lands on that question? Oh, gosh. Where does he land? All of his actions point towards choosing the new world and letting the old one go. But he doesn't, he can't quite let it go until he reaches some kind of peace with his mother's situation. Once he does, he's no longer split between the two worlds. Um, he has to make peace with the old world before he can choose the new world. Do you feel that it is hard ultimately to be both Chinese and American at the same time? Yes, but I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, not that a person can choose, but in those notes, that was one of the things that my dad said. He said, it's really hard to live in two cultures. That's one of the quotes that I noted down. But it gives you a richness. And I think it gives you, or at least I've found, more of a perspective or interest in, in all people and in all kinds of ways of living. Just wanting to, to learn everyone's story, realizing that none are straightforward. That was author Melissa Fu talking with me earlier this year about her novel Peach Blossom Spring. 
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From USPS, serving every address in the country, more than 160 million nationwide. USPS, delivering for America. Learn more at usps.com delivering. From Focus Features, presenting Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, a comedy about a megachurch pastor and his wife who will do whatever it takes to save their congregation. In theaters and streaming on Peacock Friday. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 81 degrees in Boston at just a minute before 6 o'clock. Coming up in the next half hour of All Things Considered, we'll hear from the parents who lost a daughter at Uvalde, Texas, and how they're coping with that loss. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows will be around 64 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny. The highs around 81 Sunny and 78 degrees on Friday. Saturday should be mostly sunny. The highs around 83 degrees. Mostly sunny with a chance of showers on Sunday afternoon. The highs will be around 89. Again, right now it's 81 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. I'm midday host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. She should be here. We all should be able to witness what she would have contributed to this world. You shouldn't have to hear it from me. It's been three months since the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and for the parents of one 10-year-old victim, there's no escaping the grief. It's Wednesday, August 31st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, how one Uvalde family continues to cope with grief and anger. Also, an update on the latest from the investigation into how classified documents and other government records ended up at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. And the Federal Transit Administration issues a scathing report about the MBTA. The feds say the T shifted money for operations and safety to capital projects. The report calls for dozens of changes to be made. It's 6.01, now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. The Pentagon says it's seeing some signs of Ukrainian military advances in the southern part of the country. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, neither the Ukrainians nor the Russians have provided specifics on the latest fighting. Ukraine began stepping up attacks outside the southern city of Kherson this week, but details have been scarce. A Pentagon spokesman, Brigadier General Pat Ryder, offered this assessment. We are aware of uh, Ukrainian uh, military um, operations that have made some forward movement, uh, and in some cases uh, in, in the Kherson region, uh, we are aware in some cases of Russian units falling back. The Pentagon says it wants to let Ukraine take the lead in talking about the operation. Ukraine says it's broken through Russian lines in some places, but is not ready to give specifics. Russia, meanwhile, says it's beaten back Ukrainian troops and inflicted heavy losses. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. 
In Jackson, Mississippi, people waited in long lines at distribution sites and flooded stores today for water to drink, cook, and flush toilets with after the city's water system failed. This amid flooding that exacerbated longstanding problems in one of two water treatment plants. Jackson Mayor Shokwe Lumumba says they're still asking residents to boil that water. It is safe uh, to take uh, baths in. Uh, it is safe. Uh, to, to wash your hands. Um, however, if you are drinking or cooking with it, we ask you to boil that water. And he says that includes boiling it to wash the dishes. President Biden called Amumba today, offering support from FEMA, the EPA, and the Army Corps of Engineers. Biden also says he wants to provide federal support to rebuild Jackson's aging water infrastructure, which has been unreliable for years. The Federal Transit Administration has sharp words for strict orders for Boston's troubled public transit system. It's known as the T. As NPR's Tovia Smith reports, officials are demanding more staff and training to improve safety as well as beefed up oversight. The T has been under federal review due to a series of mishaps and accidents, including two fatal. The, the system has to get safer. It's just not an option. After releasing the agency's scathing report, the FTA's Paul Kincaid blamed the T for inadequate staffing and training and focusing more on long-term projects instead of daily operations. There have been decisions made over years that have prioritized things other than safety. Our goal is to stop that. The FTA also blamed Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities, the agency supposed to oversee the T, for not doing its job. Tovia Smith reporting. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Now more on that critical report on MBTA safety issued today by the Federal Transit Administration. At least one Massachusetts electric, elected leader is now calling for a change at the top of the T. WBUR's Chris Siderick has more. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton says in light of the report from the FTA, it's time for a change in leadership at the MBTA. I don't see how you can read this report and not believe that absolutely that has to happen. Moulton says what the T really needs to get back on track is someone with real-world experience. We need to bring in some professionals who know how to run transit systems. Because I ride transit systems around the country and the, around the world, and it's a totally different experience. Moulton adds that he plans to stay on the issue, and we'll be meeting again with MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak in the coming weeks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Chris Siderick. Two Boston City Councilors have withdrawn requests that the council seek police investigative records. Today, Councilor Frank Baker pulled back his request for details on the police investigations into fellow Councilor Ricardo Arroyo. Arroyo was investigated twice as a teenager for sexual assault. He was not charged and denies wrongdoing. Councilor Kendra Lara has withdrawn her request for police records on Councilor Baker's past marijuana conviction. Baker said the request was retaliation for his motion on Arroyo. Lara says her request was meant to point out that there are higher standards and different disciplines for people of color in Boston. Governor Baker has pl a plan for how the state should use more than $5 billion in surplus tax revenue. He's filed a supplemental budget proposal to use about $1.6 billion on new spending. It includes $200 million for the MBTA, $37 million for school safety, and $100 million for COVID response. The Baker administration also said today it's moving forward with $2.9 billion in refunds to taxpayers because of excess revenue. 
In sports, the Red Sox will try to avoid the sweep tonight when they take on the Twins in Minnesota. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows around 64 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny. The highs will be around 81. Right now, it's 80 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. We're starting this hour in Uvalde, Texas, where, like the rest of America, students and parents are starting a new school year. But unlike the rest of the country, they're returning to school for the first time since a shooting, where 19 students and two teachers were killed in May. I spent last week talking to people in Uvalde about what the last three months have been like and what they're thinking now. Over the next few days, we're going to bring you their stories including the story of Kimberly and Felix Rubio. I met them on a recent Sunday evening at the site of a special memorial for their daughter, Lexi Rubio. I have been so like on pins and needles about like that it was everything was gonna go smoothly that I almost didn't even wanna tell anybody where it was until yeah. we're like here today yeah. starting. Just so, yeah, we're, Lexi was 10 and she was one of the victims of the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School. And as this small town continues to grieve, Murals are going up on the walls of downtown buildings. The victims' faces are larger than life, surrounded by the things they loved and the words they spoke to their families. The artists working on Lexi's mural projected an image of her on a cream-colored wall in a parking lot, and they started working. Lexi's family watched from across the street. They looked up at the image of Lexi, smiling back at them, surrounded by colorful flowers and butterflies. I'll see it when I run. I'll see it when I park here to go to work. It's, yeah. it's a beautiful building. Like, it's a beautiful building. Yeah. You can see the tower behind. Yep. The day after we met the Rubios at the mural site, we visited them at their new home. Hi. Come in. Hi. How are you? Where another image of Lexi stands out, right when you walk through the front door. Okay, so we have uh, Lexi's photo the first night we stayed here, like that was what Felix grabbed immediately from the house. This Felix loves it. It's a softball. It says Lexi Rubio, and then there's pictures of her. This is the one where she's has her. She's in the dugout, has her hands on the fence. She's looking at us, gives us a little smile. I asked Felix and Kimberly to describe their daughter. Lexi was a quiet child, shy, uh, smart. Uh, appreciative of life and anything that comes her way. Uh, her athletic ability, where we're just seeing what was coming about from her. Um, competitive. Competitive, yeah, very, very competitive. competitive. Um, she wanted to be the best at everything. And she was, because she put in so much hard work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you said she was athletic. What sports did she play? Uh, she did softball, basketball. Those were her two main sports. And then I know... Volleyball, that was something she was looking forward to. How have you all been doing these last three months? How, how, how have you been making your way through this? I feel like personally I've just kind of thrown myself into the activism role. Uh, don't give myself much time to think of it. Um, I really don't think I've accepted it, really. 
This summer, they attended rallies in Texas and met with state lawmakers, and they testified to Congress in Washington to call for more gun control measures, including a federal ban on assault-style weapons. At this point, Felix, who was wearing a t-shirt with Lexi's name and face on it, grew more quiet, and Kimberly answered most of the questions. How has it been at home with your kids working through the fact that Lexi's not here? Um... It's difficult. Uh, I feel like the kids have changed. Uh, It's, we're not the same, but we're missing her, and so we're just, we're broken. Mm -hmm. You said that you've thrown yourself into the activism, and I know that you've been a journalist in the past. What has it been like kind of stepping into that role and being kind of at the forefront of that activism? Why was that the impulse that you had following shooting I just immediately after thought about one my own children I might we still have we still have children here that we have to fight for and then I just kept thinking about other moms really um I don't want anybody to feel the way I feel one of the reasons why we wanted to come here now is because everyone is preparing to start a new school year. And I wanted to ask about what that's been like for you in preparing your children to start a new school year. Are they going back in person? Oh, uh, we have see, three that are going back in person for sure. Um, I think it means something to them to kind of go back to their routine to see their friends. And then our little one was also at Rob that day, so we signed him up for virtual. We're still back and forth on whether we're going to send him to school. Uh, I don't know what his reaction will be, so. But virtual's definitely a possibility for him. You've talked about what your kids want, but how are you all feeling about kids heading back to school? I mean, I don't think we'll ever feel comfortable with our kids being anywhere that isn't inside my home. <laughs> uh, I think about that a lot, because with school right now, but they'll go off. I mean, parades, concerts, a grocery store, where are they safe? I'm sorry, that's just, it. it's a really sad situation that that's something you have to think, that any parent has to think about. I mean, that's why we, we chose this house. Uh, it's by the junior high, the high school, Flotus, all of our kids will eventually be in this area. So if something ever happens again, we thought, well, they can run home. So when we're looking for a place to live, that's location was priority. What have you heard so far from the school districts, from local leadership about how things might look different at these schools in this upcoming year because of what happened at Rob? Uh, So we met with the superintendent and um, assistant superintendent and social worker uh, so we could lay that out or they could lay that out for us. Um, They did have a few things that day. The fences are obvious that's going up. Uh, There will be a paid position, somebody who goes around each campus every morning and throughout the day, I think, to go check locks, not only to make sure that they are locked, but to make sure there isn't any anything wrong with the mechanism. And if it is, it'll be um, put into the iPad in like an immediate maintenance order, and that will go out and be fixed. It's a long list of changes, but you even said yourself, you're not ever going to feel safe with your kids not being in your home. Is there more that you'd like to see them do that would make it even a half measure more comfortable for you as a mom to send them out there? I don't... I would say no. There's nothing you can do. Yeah. I mean, because you say there's a heavy police presence, but there was a heavy police presence that day. So I don't know that even if there was a threat, I don't feel comfortable that they could handle it. Um, 
I mean, I guess to me, I would really like somebody monitoring the surveillance cameras. That could be the one thing mm -hmm. for me. But again, I don't know that I'll ever feel comfortable, you know, if I'm not there or they're not with me. I want to ask you a little bit about the activism work that you've been doing. I know some people, after violent events happen, there's I feel like there's always these two schools of camp. There are people who say that it's not a moment for activism, it's not a moment for politics. And then there are people like you who immediately jumped into activism. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's been like for you and for your family to kind of jump into this role? It's been difficult because, you know, like, we don't even want to get out of bed some days. It's, it's a lot. Um, but it's also necessary. And I know that we would love to say that it isn't political, but it, it is. Uh, that's just, a, that's our country. Um, so we need change and that's just the way you go about it. So that's why we, you know, we've been in DC meeting with senators, um, just trying to let them know that while it is political, it doesn't have to be this like left, right thing. Um, we all want common sense gun laws like it just that's what we want if you would just listen to your constituents you would hear us how do you want the world to remember Lexi how would Lexi want us to remember her and what would she want us to know about her Lexi would have made a difference in this world uh, she was very into politics already at a young age um I know she would have made a difference. So it's not just us who lost someone, the world. The world lost her. Um, she's, a, she's a beautiful person and we miss her a lot. This should have never happened. And she should be here. Y'all should be able to witness what she would have contributed to this world. You shouldn't have to hear it from me sitting on this table. I'm really sorry. Um, I know that you what you mentioned to one of the producers that you had at one point considered leaving Uvalde, leaving Texas. Mm -hmm. What makes you stay? Alexi's here, so we're staying with her. The same day we met the Rubios, we saw some of their family at a prayer walk. Let's pray for the schools because we lift our hands. Father God, we come before you. On Sunday evenings, this group has been walking the grounds of Uvalde's schools. We realize that we cannot trust in man for security, Lord. That is why we are here before you this evening because we, we followed them as they walked around the junior and senior high schools, some with hands raised, others singing. Praying for Uvalde's peace and safety. Tomorrow, we'll hear from two Uvalde parents who do not feel safe sending their children back to the classroom. Instead, they've decided to homeschool them.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 80 degrees in Boston at 618. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll have an update on the investigation into how classified documents wound up in former President Trump's Florida home. That's just ahead here on WBUR. In business news, the drought in Massachusetts is hammering agriculture, but the dry weather is actually benefiting some businesses in the region. The Portland Sea Dogs baseball team says average daily attendance is above pre-pandemic levels. The heat is also helping with ice cream and water sales. Local landscapers say they've been able to get more work done on outdoor projects like patio and walkway installations. And golf courses say the lack of rain has brought in more customers, but some of the intensely hot days have kept some people away. On Wall Street, stocks were lower again today. The Dow was down 278 points, or about nine-tenths of a percent, at 31,513. NASDAQ was off 68 points, or six-tenths of a percent, at 11,815. And the S&P 500 was off 31 points, or eight-tenths of a percent, at 39.55. Marketplace will be up in about 10 minutes with all the day's business news. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Looking for a staycation read? Our new pop-up newsletter is filled with great suggestions that will transport you to the sun and sand. Sign up now at WBUR.org beachbooks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Energy is at the center of how we live today, and with global energy prices increasing, the impact to families can be significant. Eversource may be able to help with their flexible payment plan options. For more information and to see if you qualify, visit Eversource.com. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 64 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny. The highs around 81. Sunny and 78 degrees on Friday. Saturday should be mostly sunny. The highs will be around 83. Right now, it's 80 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include The Wilbur in Boston, presenting Chris Boating, Friday, November 25th and Saturday, November 26th. Tickets and info at thewilbur.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Since the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, former President Trump has claimed that he completely cooperated with investigators. The Justice Department says in a new court filing that that is just not true. The department also provided new details on the high-profile investigation. And joining us now with more details is NPR Justice Correspondent Ryan Lucas. Hi, Ryan. Hi there. Okay, so this new document that the Justice Department just filed in court is something like 36 pages long. Mm -hmm. What is in there? Uh, A lot. In this document gives us really the most detailed look yet into the government's uh, long-running efforts to get back from Trump classified materials and other presidential records that were taken to Mar-a-Lago after he left office. Remember, Trump was supposed to turn all the government documents that ended up at Mar-a-Lago over to the National Archives back in January, but the FBI learned that more classified documents were still at the Florida estate. And so uh, in May, it got a grand jury subpoena for any documents that remain there. In response, Trump attorneys say they did a thorough search of Mar-a-Lago, including a storage room where boxes were kept, uh, and that they gathered together all the remaining classified documents. And then when a senior Justice Department official and FBI agents visited Mar-a-Lago in June, Trump's lawyers handed over one uh, red-weld envelope, double-wrapped in tape, 
That envelope contained 38 classified documents, including some that were marked top secret, and they said that was everything. 38 classified documents, one envelope. So Trump's representative said that that was everything, but then the FBI heard from witnesses that there were still more classified materials there? That's right. The department says the FBI had evidence that government documents were likely concealed and removed from that storage room where they were being held, and that... Efforts were likely taken to obstruct the government's investigation. And remember, one of the crimes the FBI is investigating here relates to obstruction. And when the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago on August 8th, agents found more highly classified documents. The department says some of those documents were so sensitive that even the FBI agents and DOJ attorneys needed additional security clearances before they could review them. Uh, The department notes that the FBI recovered twice as many classified documents in a couple of hours at Mar-a-Lago as Trump's attorneys did in weeks of their quote-unquote, diligent search there. And the department says that cast doubt on the extent of Trump's cooperation. Well, I want to talk about one photo in particular, because in its filing, the Justice Department included this photo. It shows classified documents found in Trump's office at Mar-a-Lago. And these documents were clearly marked secret and top secret, which seems pretty important. Can you just talk a little more about this photo? Right. Uh, It says a couple of things. One, it makes clear that there's no way to argue that there could be any confusion that these were classified documents. They have bright red or yellow cover sheets with secret or top secret and bold red letters on them. Uh, On top of that, the government says classified materials were found in Trump's desk drawer mixed in with other documents. Now, I spoke with David Lofman. Uh, He used to lead the Justice Department's counterintelligence division, and he says the fact that classified documents were just mixed in with Trump's personal effects matters because it makes it reasonable to infer that Trump had a personal interest interest in keeping those classified documents even in the face of a grand jury subpoena. Here's Lofman. I think some of the additional factual revelations in the filing make stronger the government's potential criminal case against the former president of the United States for unlawful retention of national defense information, as well as his potential complicity in obstruction of justice. In other words, the new details here suggest Trump's legal peril may be greater than we previously knew. So what's next in these proceedings? Well, there's a hearing tomorrow in federal court in Florida on Trump's request for an independent special master to review the documents seized at Mar-a-Lago for potentially privileged uh, reasons. Uh, The Justice Department opposes that. It says there's no legal basis for it. And it says the FBI has already gone through everything that was taken at Mar-a-Lago. That is NPR's Ryan Lucas. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. The MBTA is understaffed, undertrained, and has inadequate safety protocols. It's also prioritized big capital projects at the expense of everyday safety and maintenance. Those are new findings from a scathing report released today by the Federal Transit Administration. To discuss the latest in the Fed's months-long probe of the T, we're joined by reporter Laura Craigle. Hi, Laura. Hey, Steve. So, Laura, the FTA issued another report on the T just back in June. How is this new one different? The earlier report addressed some of the most urgent problems at the T, like the fact that some workers were pulling 20-hour shifts. Uh, Today's report gets into even bigger and more long-term issues at the T, as well as the state agency that oversees the T, the Department of Public Utilities. And the takeaway is that the T has a ton of work to do. 
The report identifies 53 problem areas that range from severe understaffing and insufficient safety management to poor communications and operating policies. And the report includes a series of directives. One of those requires a five-year assessment of the T's workforce to determine how many employees it really needs to address all of its problems, especially when it's already struggling to hire and the current staff is overwhelmed. So the feds acknowledge that this is going to be a long road for the T. Uh, Here's the FTA's Paul Kincaid during a press conference today. It's going to take a fair amount of time and unfortunately a fair amount of patience on the part of the riders of the T to get it to what we call a state of good repair. And so it's our hope that today is a turning point for the safety culture at the MBTA and the DPU, and they'll begin making the correct decisions that provide a safe, reliable ride. So, Laura, when Kincaid refers to correct decisions, what does he mean? Well, in the report, the FTA points out that in January, the T moved $500 million of its operating budget for the day-to-day stuff into its capital budget for big projects. And the feds say that this switch was not advisable, that there's been a lack of balance between current service and the longer-term projects for several years, and that those decisions are really driving many of the T's current issues, as well as jeopardizing safety for riders and workers. And I should note that the FTA is not putting all of this on the T. The feds really did call out the DPU, saying that they need to do their jobs of actually overseeing the T and ensuring the T is putting safety ahead of anything else. Are are there going to be any consequences for the T or the DPU officials? And how are they reacting to this report? Well, the FTA said it's not really in a position to punish anyone. And the feds say they don't actually see it as a time for recriminations. They want to focus on making progress. On the state level, though, we'll have to see if there are consequences. For its part, the T held a separate press conference today where officials said they are committed to safety and doing everything that the feds have ordered. General Manager Steve Poftak also announced that the T is creating a new department called the Quality, Compliance, and Oversight Office, which will head up the huge effort it'll take to try to address all of the FTA's findings. Obviously, a, uh, a, a challenging day for us here at the MBTA, but also a day, uh, I believe, of opportunity. Poftak emphasized that the FTA is not taking over the T, which is something the feds can do. He highlighted that the legislature has given the T an extra $266 million this year that will be used to help make changes. And he pointed to Governor Charlie Baker today filing a supplemental budget for another $200 million. But Poftak said these problems are long in the making and will take time to solve. And he knows that the feds will be watching the T's and DPU's next moves. This is an engagement with the FTA that will go on for years. This is not the type of work that is going to be, you know, is going to be a three or six month engagement. We envision this as a multi-year effort. So, Laura, how has the Department of Public Utilities responded to this report? So in a statement, a DPU spokesman said the agency takes seriously the safety of riders and welcomes the, quote, thorough review conducted by the FTA. The statement goes on to list a number of steps DPU says it's taking, including increasing safety staffing, and says the agency is looking forward to ongoing collaboration with state and federal officials. Reporter Laura Craigle, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Steve. It's 80 degrees in Boston at 629. Marketplace is coming up next with all the day's business news. It'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows will be around 64 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny. The highs around 81. Sunny and 78 degrees on Friday. Again, right now, it's 80 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. 
Family owned and operated, offering brand name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. And the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers.